the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the Passover feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew... Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, The voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So today's sermon is, it's kind of a three-point sermon. I don't do a lot of those very frequently. And it's atypical three-point sermon because I don't have a title for each of the points. They're actually just reflections on three different verses in the passage, beginning with verse 24. When I read this passage, the verse that just captures me, and maybe it's because you are familiar with it, it's the, what the epigraph to Brothers K, uh, the Brothers K, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, is verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So in order to get a better feel for this whole seed metaphor language, being the, uh, I'm not agrarian in, in any capacity, all of the planting in my home, it, that's taken care of by Aaron and Hannah. They're the ones who, Hannah's our tomato plant planter every year, and they take care of it. But in order to get a feel for seeds and the significance of seeds, I did some plant physiologist reading this week. Did you know that every seed is an embryo? And in every embryo, There is a root, which goes down into the ground, and a shoot that goes up into the sky. And in every embryo, 
there is an on and off switch. When you plant a seed in the ground at 40 degrees for 40 days, the, that mechanism, that on and off switch, and that's what, the, that's what the PhD in plant physiology actually called it, the on and off switch, when you do that, it goes on. But if the temperature is less than 40 degrees, let's say it's at 20 degrees, the mechanism stays off. When the mechanism goes on, and when there's a certain amount of moisture content in the soil, then the thin coat around the seed that protects the oxygen from coming in prematurely, that begins to, uh, the seed coat is broken. 40 days, 40 degrees, the switch goes on, the seed coat is broken, the seed begins to produce sugar and protein, it begins to mature, and then out comes little roots and little shoots, and shoots produce more seeds, which produce more fruit, which produces all of that is the the miracle that happens when a seed dies. Jesus says, I am that seed. Did he mean all of that? (laughs) Was he thinking about all the different minutiae, the interesting scientific happenings that take place in the seed? No, of course not. He's just using it as a general... Uh, as a general uh, metaphor for what his death and his resurrection, what kind of life it's going to bring. But I couldn't help but notice how fascinating it is. 40 days at 40 degrees. Aren't we in the middle of 40 days right now? Is Is there any significance in the matter of 40 days? 40 days in the desert where the sinless Son of God is tempted to sin. 40 days where he thirsts in the parched desert until afterward he is is finally watered by God. 40 days that culminate in this moment of his life when he will be planted in the earth outside of the city of Jerusalem on a hill called Calvary. And from that will come the great harvest uh, of the ages. Jesus says, I am the seed. And then he goes on to say, you are to do likewise. Did you catch that? Verse 25. He immediately moves on from, I am the seed planted into the ground, to you are the seed. You have to, you have to die. You have to, well, he says there, the man who loves his life will lose it. The man who hates his life in this world will will keep it for eternal life. He says, you are the one that has to die just like me. What does he mean by that? Okay, so this past, was it Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, my daughter, Allie, was competing in the finals of the Idaho State Mock Trial competition. When I was in high school, I never did mock trial, but I was a speech and debater. And when I was sitting in, these, in the courtrooms listening to these cases, like all of my old speech and debate past was coming back to me. And I could just feel the hair on the back of my neck stand up on edge as, as the arguments are being 
you know, f- flying about here and there, and I, I just want the prosecutor to, to pound them into the ground with the arguments, because that's what we did in speech and debate all the time. I could feel all of, have you ever had that happen to you? All of the old you come back. The you that, in my case, that was a part of the you that I had to die to. The, Jesus is saying, you, you have to die to the pre-Christian you, you have to die to the American you, the old you. Uh, your preoccupations with yourself and your happiness, there is a daily death involved in Christian discipleship. You remember the, the most famous, probably the most famous quote of Dietrich Bonhoeffer was that when Jesus Christ calls a man, he, he calls him, he bids him to come and die. When Jesus Christ calls a man, the cross is laid on every Christian. He goes on, it may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave their home and, and, and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Martin Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world to follow Jesus. But it's the same death that every one of his followers are, are called to. It is a death in Christ. There's a daily death. A death to ourselves for the sake of other people. Is that what you are orienting your life around, around that thing? Are you centering your life around God's harvest mission and plans in this world? We are supposed to invest our time and energies to serve people whom God has sovereignly put us around. What, what does it mean for you to die? For you to die? What does it mean for you to hate your life? How many of us, when we were in junior high, ended up saying those words, I hate my life as a junior high schooler, right? I, but Jesus doesn't mean that. Elsewhere, he says that Unless you hate your family, unless you hate your father, mother, sister, and brother, you're not worthy to be my disciples. And by that, he's saying, your love for me must be so great that your love for the most dear other people in your life looks like hatred by comparison. What does it mean to hate yourself? Uh, you know, not in that self-loathing or, or piteous state, but compared to your love for him, your love for you, is I suspect if we're doing it, we're just going to look so much different than the rest of the world. What is the prevalent attitude that you see on campus all the time? It is, my life is my life. It, my life is my own. I'll live it however I want. Thank you very much. What do you find in your office? My time is my time. And I'll do with it what I like. Thank you very much. Jesus Christ says, there's no more thank you very much for us. There is, we are people who no longer see our lives centered around ourselves. We orient our lives around God's mission in this world in order to see new life and new harvest span throughout all four corners of the globe. Wonderful, compelling example of that that took place about six months ago. Do you remember when 
there was the Ebola outbreak in Western Africa. And there were a large number of doctors and physicians who were serving in West Africa trying to help infected people. You know what the, what, uh, the, the larger chorus of voices was saying to them? They were saying, you better get out of there because you're going to die. Ebola's going to kill you. You know, Run and flee. And those doctors, they said, no way. We are here because we are willing to die. We're willing to give our lives for the sake of these people. Who were those doctors? Were, were those your atheist, agnostic, upper middle class white Americans that were over there? No. I mean, almost all of the doctors were Christians. They were Anglicans and Presbyterians and Baptists and Pentecostals. And it's not like you find the American Philosophers Association giving their lives in West Africa. That never happens. And who do you think is the, the one demographic in America that serves most consistently in American soup kitchens? It's not agnostics. It's not. This week I was reading the testimony of a woman who writes on a blog and she's uh, well she says every Tuesday I work at a soup kitchen in, in Manhattan we it, when we go to the soup kitchen we worship together and then we eat together we serve about 100 to 200 people I go to the soup kitchen because I care about the kingdom of Jesus the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of heaven, and so she cr creates her own kind of reverse uh, beatitudes of sort. The kingdom of heaven is like a young Christian college student who saves all of his money to buy dessert in order that the homeless would have a tasty treat at the end of the meal. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who asks for socks, and I have to tell him, I'm sorry, sir, but we don't have any socks left. And then the, the Christian college student takes his socks or her socks off their feet and gives them the pair. The kingdom of heaven is the woman who asks, there's got to be more ways we can serve and meet needs here, isn't there? And stays until the last person is done eating. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman saying, I'm not sure I believe in all this religion stuff, but I know I experience God when we are together. The kingdom of heaven is like a middle-aged man who, who walks into the soup kitchen and volunteers to clean up all of the dirty plates and to wait and make sure everyone is safe and done before he leaves. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of the seed and it is not the kingdom of the self. What does the kingdom of heaven look like in your life? When you step back and you think about it, the real currency that we have in this world, it's obviously not money. How many, uh, how many times have you heard it said that you, you can't take it with you when you die? I mean, you're... Your money doesn't do anything for you as, as soon as you're in, in the ground. All we, the real currency of life is not money. It is our time. 
All we really have and all we have ever really had is time. There's only a limited amount of time to get the seed into the ground in order that it would reproduce and create a harvest. There's only 40 days at 40 degrees, so to speak, to get it into the ground to bring a harvest. Jesus says Christians are people who, who orient their lives around seed time and harvest, just like he did. That's the first verse. The second one I want to draw your attention to is found in verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour. We have not been following along in the Gospel of John. We're kind of picking and choosing our passages leading up to Good Friday and Easter, and then we're going to continue picking and choosing our passages all the way up to Pentecost. If you had been closely following in the Gospel of John, you would know that Jesus often uses this kind of language of my hour, my moment. It's, uh, okay, I want you to imagine it's media day, Super Bowl media day, and all of those reporters are standing around the football player who, imagine a brash athlete with a Deion Sanders-like persona who is who's insanely overconfident in his abilities, and he has a microphone put in front of him. Sir, I mean, tell me, what does the Super Bowl mean to you? What are you going to do in the Super Bowl? You can imagine that kind of guy saying something along the lines of, it's showtime. <laughs> it's my time, he says. Right now, we've got the NCAA tournament. You can imagine the coach in the locker room before his team goes out and takes the court. He says, guys, this is our moment. This is our moment to shine. Our, our one shining moment. You can imagine the contestant who is auditioning for American Idol. What do they say before they go on to the show? This is my opportunity. This is my... Okay, the same type of thing. Well, Jesus says here, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's saying my hour is here. The climactic moment of my life and ministry is here. When my name is going to be glorified up in the, in the spot, in the, in the bright lights, in the spotlight. He's for everybody to see. And the disciples are hearing this as they're standing around him and they're thinking, all right, finally, you know, let the fireworks begin. He's finally going to be lifted up on the big stage. But, What's the hour he's talking about? It's the, it's the hour of his, his crucifixion. Did you know that Jesus Christ really was crucified? If you were to go out and survey pretty much every reputable first century historian, almost every single one of them will agree that at a bare minimum, there was a guy by the name of Jesus who was a Jew and he did get crucified by the Romans in AD 33. Like, there's nothing historically sketchy about that. It is not 
If you're a student, let's say, of the Quran, there's a lot of historically sketchy things related to the life of Muhammad. If you have ever had any exposure to Mormonism here in the Treasure Valley, you know, there's a lot of historically sketchy stuff taken from the Book of Mormon. But, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that Jesus Christ was, was crucified. Did you know that crucifixion was a form of propaganda? When the Romans crucified somebody, they were basically engaging in a grisly form of performance art propaganda. Quote, this is Anthony Ladon, a first century scholar. He says, The criminals who were crucified by the Romans were those people who had, in the view of their judges, gotten, quote, uh, above themselves, above their station of life. Rebellious slaves, for instance, were the ones who were most crucified. Or slaves who had insulted their masters were often crucified. Or people of any class who had not shown proper deference and respect to the emperor. Or or those who had revolted against the the Roman um, imperial government. Whoever demonstrated disdain for imperial rule. Crucifixion was basically a, a parody. A mimicked parody intended to unmask and in a deliberately grotesque manner the arrogance and pretensions of those who exalted themselves beyond their station in life. The authorities were bent on demonstrating through the graphic tool of crucifixion that this is where self-promotion leads you. Um, You think you're all that? You, You think you're so special? Well, we are going to lift you up for all the world to see you in your glory. And see what's happening here? There's, there's a great... Uh, I, okay, I came up with this in, in between services, so it may not make sense, but it's almost like Jesus, he does a parody of the parody. Okay, he's up there, lifted up. Now, had he exalted himself above his station in life? Absolutely not. I mean, the whole point was that he is the son of God. He's humbled himself to the lowest station of life. He's up there exalted. Had he committed any sin or crimes that were deserving of the penalty of crucifixion? No, he's the only sinless, crimeless man who's ever, who's ever been in that position. But, but he's lifted up, and he's, at that moment, he, they think he's one thing, and, and really he's a completely different thing. And he says, he says in verse... Um, Verse 32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. The parody of the parody that brings about, he draws, he draws all men to himself because they see him for all of his beauty as, as the savior, as, as the one who is you know, paying the penalty of their sins. Okay, I don't know if that made tremendous amount of sense it leads to this question are you able to articulate the message of the cross to your non-christian friends and family members to your non-christian co-workers you, you wouldn't have to do it in that language or maybe even this when was the last time 
you communicated the message of the cross to your non-Christian friends or colleagues or family members? Again, not in this language necessarily, but in your own language. Can you explain to them how, how the cross is a place of forgiveness? I've tried to do that in the past. I've, I've given you this illustration. I said that, you know, forgiveness always involves Forgiveness always involves some form of payment. So if I let you borrow my iPad and you drop it on the ground and crack the screen and then you return it to me, either you can pay the repair bill, however many hundreds of dollars that's going to be, or I, I can pay that repair bill. The, the, the debt doesn't vanish somehow into thin air. Someone has to absorb the cost And forgiveness is when we say, I will absorb the cost of that debt. Then someone, okay, we we shift the analogy just slightly. Someone terribly abuses your child when they're in their care. Let's say they're they're at some daycare center and they are are physically or mentally uh, abused. There's a debt that is accrued there, isn't there? isn't it? Uh, A very large debt. It's a debt which shouldn't be erased off the books and vanish into thin air. I mean, justice demands that that type of debt actually gets paid, and it's usually paid by a long time behind bars. Forgiveness involves paying a debt. Justice requires the paying of a debt. When Jesus Christ is hanging there as the sinless Son of God, what he's doing is paying your debt. And then finally, verse 33. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Verse 33. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. I came across this week a short story by Ernest Hemingway. A couple of Sundays back, I used Hemingway in a sermon illustration as a, a man who had a restless spirit, a man who had a great thirst for God, but was trying to satisfy that thirst in all of the wrong places. The short story is called, is it called Good Friday? It is Good Friday. And it takes place on <laughs> Good Friday, and it involves, it involves three Roman soldiers. What happens when the sinless Son of God is lifted up and is crucified on, on Good Friday? Well, it just so happens that life goes on like it would on any Friday. Where do, you, where do your Roman soldiers go at the end of a long, hard work week? They go to the bar. So the story is set with the three soldiers sitting at the bar. I had to consult our local Hemingway scholar in our church. <laughs> uh, Brian, you might not know it, but he knows Hemingway really well. And I said, okay, Brian, tell me, what's the, give me the background on this story. He said, Hemingway writes this story as, as sort of a way to express his admiration for Jesus. Um, it's his tip of the cap to the, to the, the um, noble way that Jesus dies. 
And with that, I'll give it to you. There's the three soldiers in the dialogue. One of them says, Jesus Christ. The other one says, that was a false alarm. And the third one says, oh, I don't know, guys. I thought he was pretty good out there today. First one says, what I didn't understand is why he didn't come off the cross. Second one says, he didn't want to come off. He didn't want to come down off the cross. First one says, what? Show me a guy that doesn't want to come down off the cross. Ask George here. George is the Jewish wine cellar, the, the bartender. Ask George here. Did he really, did he want to come down off the cross, George? George, I tell you, gentlemen, I wasn't out there. It's a thing that I haven't taken any interest in. Hey, now, listen, I've seen a lot of them here and in plenty of other places. Didn't want to come off the cross. Anytime you can show me one that doesn't want to get down off the cross, when the time comes, that is when the time comes, I mean, I'll climb right up there with him. I don't know, guys, said the third I thought he was pretty good out there today. In the first. You guys don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying whether he was good or not. What I mean is when the time comes, when they first start a nailing him, there isn't none of them that wouldn't stop it if they could. Yeah, you're right. The part I don't like is the nailing them on. You know, that must get you pretty bad. It isn't that that's so bad. It's as when they first start to lift him up and he makes a, a lifting gesture with his, with, with his two palms together. When they lift him up, when the weight starts to pull on him, that's when it gets him. It takes him pretty, pretty bad at that point. I've seen plenty of them, I tell you. Oh, I always mess up the last line. This is the third guy. I've seen plenty of them, guys, and I tell you, he was pretty good out there today. And so what is Hemingway doing? He's, he's looking at the cross as though it was a, a performance. And he admires Jesus' stoicism. How Jesus is able to sort of take the worst that the world can throw at him. And he dies pretty well. He dies with dignity. He's not this sniveling and weeping coward this was at a time when Hemingway was married to his third wife, who was a Roman Catholic, and, and maybe he was investigating a little bit about Christianity. But this is, is not of the cap. I, I admire you for, for dying without, uh, without, without being afraid or coming unraveled. Is that entirely true? Did, did Jesus ever come unraveled? He did. That's the one thing I wish that Hemingway at least would have commented on, made some mention of. There are three hours of darkness on the cross, and the culminating moment of those hours of darkness is not him saying, I'm doing pretty well here, guys. Uh, uh, I'm bearing it with a stiff, stiff upper, upper lip. It, at the culminating moment of the darkness, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's because at that moment he was paying the debt of our sins. 
the punishment which it deserved, God-forsakenness in the darkness. Again, can you communicate that to your non-Christian friends and family? The message of the cross. The seed that goes into the ground. From it comes the great harvest. The world says, okay, this is the last page. This is the end. The world says, mind your own business. It's my life. Thank you very much. And Jesus says, there's no such thing as your life. There's no such thing as your own business. The world says, follow the wisest course of action. um, Go to the right school. Get the right degree. Go out into the world and become a success. And Jesus says, follow me and you'll get crucified. The world says, uh, drive carefully because the life you save might be your own. And Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will actually find it for eternal life. The world says, squishy love. And Jesus says, justice and forgiveness 100%, completely, both. And the world says, get out there and get as much as you can get. And Jesus says, fall into the ground with me, for from the seed comes the great harvest. Amen.